You're back! Or maybe you're just jumping in on season two. But either way, you're here, and that makes me feel safe. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the Improv Comedy Connection, too. This season is already shaping up to be so, so good. And as your host, Witt Schiller, I get to dig in with you as we hear the great perspective and insight not only in this episode, but in the rest of the season, too. I won't say that there's a specific theme for this season, but I expect that we will develop a deeper understanding of how to approach improv, comedy, and communication using humor in these next 15 episodes. We will have some great voices to hear and learn from, some of which will be familiar and some of which will be brand new to you. But I also want to hear your voice as I work to make this podcast that much more useful to you. So to start season two, we get to spend an extended time with Jimmy Corrine. Jimmy has been improvising since the 1980s, and his presence is felt throughout the improv community. Some of that ties back to his earlier experiences, including his time with the seminal improv team Jazz Freddy, which we'll talk about a fair amount, his art of slow comedy workshops and intensives, his books, Improvising Better, A Guide for the Working Improviser, which he co-wrote with Liz Allen, and Improv Therapy. And of course, his over 250 episodes hosting Improv Nerd. And that's just scratching the surface. Many of you know Jimmy well, but you're sure to find some new and applicable wisdom on improv, improvisers generally, and the industry as a whole. So let's start off Season 2 of the Improv Comedy Connection by talking with Jimmy Corain. Jimmy, I really am glad that we're able to get together and chat. First, I want to thank you. You were very generous to me early on, giving me some feedback early in the podcast, which I think has helped. (laughs) (laughs) I think think I've been able to implement at least some of your recommendations, but just you're you're a a well-known voice in improv. Your podcast is on everybody's playlist. Many people have had the chance to sit in on some classes with you. You've got a, a great reputation, great history. I wanted to start with you, if we could, with your I Am 27 one-man show. And maybe we'll bracket this a little bit, this episode, with the one-man show that you just put up. But I wanted to ask you to talk about that experience and maybe take us back to either the opening night or the closing of that show and what that experience was for you. Well, the opening night, I remember... It was a preview, and this was back, um, I want to say early 90s, and I hope I'm getting this right, at the Annoyance Theater. And, and, and the Annoyance Theater, it was in its first location, which was on um, Broadway in Belmont. And it was a really exciting time in Chicago, not only for the Annoyance Theater, but just improv and comedy and sketch in yeah. Chicago. And it was a very supportive time at the Annoyance. I, I, I just remember a lot of people came to the preview of this show. And back then in the annoyance, it was like you felt or I felt you could do anything and put anything up and it, it would mm-hmm. work. You, you know, as I got older, I realized I didn't appreciate how cool that experience was because McNapier had created this, you know, environment where, let's, you know, like if you want to do it, yeah. put it up. And it's interesting because that show that ran for an, um, I'm 27, I still live at home and sell office supplies, ran for a year and a half. And the final night closing, and, and I, I feel, I, I, I left the theater because I had a lot of resentments and uh, I wasn't in a, a great m- mental state. Now, my therapist says, 
you closed the show because you couldn't take in the joy and the success. And there was probably some truth to that. But I remember the last night, it was it was very, very exciting. It was a full house. We had to turn people away. It was a sold out show. And I was also doing a show called Jazz Freddy. Yeah. So I did that show from eight to nine. And then I think Jazz Freddy was at 10 or something or 1030 at the Live Bait Theater, which wasn't far from the annoyance okay. in those days. And I closed with, I, I can't believe I did this. This is how bad judgment I had <laughs> in those days. I, I, I closed both those shows on the same yeah. night. The closing of those shows, you were saying, had to do with dissatisfaction with the, the theater or kind of where your headspace was at that time? Yeah, I, I, I think I blamed a lot of stuff on, on the theater, you know, but the truth of the matter is it was very hard for me to take in the success of that show. So it was it was a diversion of the joy that I was experiencing. I mean, that show, I put a lot of, a lot of work yeah. into it. It was really an extension of working with Del Close. Del had always believed you could get up on stage and just tell the truth and you'd get a laugh. Now, for me, my experience, you know, like 70% of the time that yeah. worked. So then I, I worked with uh, Gary Doran, who was the director, and he's, he had worked at the I.O. and he was now a director at, at The Annoyance. And so that show was like, you know, as, as honest as, as I could be at the time. So, you know, it was, it was, just, it was just a great great experience, but I, I couldn't take in the success because that show was, I was 27 right. years old. You know, they flew me to New York to be on a talk show. I had been on a Jenny Jones. I'd gotten a lot of articles in the paper. I mean, it was, it was like lightning in the bottle. My mental state, my spiritual state, I couldn't handle that yeah. success. So I blamed it on the theater and, and I, I, I probably quit that show. You know, that show could have gone yeah. somewhere. You know, I, I don't know where, but it, but it certainly had legs because that topic of moving back with your parents, it was in magazines. It was it was a very popular topic. So recognizing that you said you were projecting your own insecurities or uh, state at the time, what were the kinds of things that you felt were dissatisfying about that experience? I felt it's it's a theme that that is permeated in my, my whole life, and and that's why I've been in therapy for 15 years. It's like, oh, no one's appreciating me, you know. I, I, we didn't get paid in those yeah. days, you know, and and for me, it was like, you know, the show was selling out. I think it was five dollar ticket. Then eventually, we raised it to six, and they're not paying me, and you know, just anything that I could I could latch on to mm. to avoid feeling the joy and feeling the success of, of really having a just uh, it was such a great show. I mean, it was really, really a great show. And people would bring, they'd come back. You always know you have a good show when people start right, right. coming back and they say, "Oh, we've seen it the second time." I wanted to bring my brother because he lives in the basement <laughs> with my mom. And it, and and it's funny with because people will still recognize me now. That's I'm 55. That's 27. You do the math. Yeah. People still recognize me from that show and the Annoyance Theater. They associate me with the Annoyance Theater and. Because of that, yeah. I just, I just want to pick up a, a quick thing. You, you, uh, you spoke in your therapist voice, and it sounded like your therapist was mocking you. <laughs> the, the show that you well, that, that's how I hear. That's how I hear it. With that's how I hear okay. It. It's just how you hear it. It's not you're going in and getting scolded for an hour. <laughs> no, but that that's how I hear them scolding me, shaming me mocking me, making fun of me. Yes. It's interesting too, though, if you're having the success that you were having from the 
audience, you know, these sold out shows, the the good comments, people coming back and bringing people to it, that was not that was not satisfying for you. It uh, you were looking for some external validation from uh, the I guess the people who had maybe higher status in a sense of not being the performer, but being the folks in charge of the theater or what have you. Well, I think I, I was getting all of that. I just I I couldn't see it and I couldn't I, I couldn't take yeah. it in. I was also young. Mm-hmm. When you're in your twenties, it's different than when you're in your forties. And and I don't think I had an appreciation of you know what a good thing yeah. I had. The other thing is I think I wish I would have stayed on that path of doing, you know, monologues or solo work or, or storytelling, I guess is what it's right. really considered today. But I was so like, I wanted to get hired by Second City. Yeah. And, you know, I saw my friends getting hired by Second City. And, and it's really hard to stay in your lane sometimes. Yeah. And I and I remember Matt Walsh, who was at the theater and, you know, Matt is on Veep and we, we've got to have some name dropping in this <laughs> in this episode. And I remember him saying to me, he goes like, you know, you're really good at this and you're going to end up doing this the rest of your life or something like that. We were in the parking lot at at I.O., Mm -hmm. I think. And I I just remember like, I don't want that. I want to, you know, I want to be on Saturday Night Live. I want to be at Second City like the rest of my friends were doing. It's hard at 27 to go like, just stay on your path, you know, just... Everyone has a different path, and it's really hard when you're in the your twenties. Even at my age, it's hard. Still in my fifties, like everyone has a different path. Well, I read some old reviews of the I Am Twenty Seven show, and a name that I saw used a number of times. There were comparisons to Spalding Gray. Now, uh-huh. in terms of the status for that skill set. That's probably about as high of a compliment that you could have received at that time. I've also heard people talk about your skill set in monologues for openings or other things like that as being off the charts, but it doesn't match the skill set that a Saturday Night Live is necessarily looking for, right? Exactly. And I remember, I, you know, I had an opportunity and I, I've talked about it on my podcast and I've written about it in my blogs. Like, I had an opportunity to audition for Saturday yeah. Night Live. And they, I had a ticket and all that, and they were going to fly me there. And I turned it down. I, again, it just, I think I was around 30. Again, it just shows the state of my mind, my emotional, my and my spiritual state at that, at that point. Like, I had no support for friends saying, you know what, Jimmy, just do it. We'll help you with the three characters and the three impressions, which you needed to do for a Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live audition. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It, 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 it isn't the same skill set. And I remember one one of the, the casting people for Saturday Night Live, I think said to me, like, don't do the guy from I'm 27. That's not going to get you on Saturday Night Live. So they are they are very yeah, different yeah. Uh, skill sets. Yeah. Well, that's you're laying out. Was it, it was about an hour performance? Yeah, it was about an hour. I think it was like 58 minutes. Yeah, and like even that. Saturday Night Live in, in that time frame, you weren't getting more than a couple of minutes to get a character established and out there and fully fleshed out. It just was, you just didn't have that that time. Right. And they were looking for, can you do a character? And and, and it's funny because I think as a, the older I get, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable doing characters, but I was like, I don't do characters. Yeah. I do, you know, I do emotions of myself or I do aspects of myself. And really the first 10 years of improv 
I, I wish I could go back, you know, just like high school. I wish I could go back to high school and do it differently. I was so committed. To, I was doing like a Bob Newhart deadpan right. guy for like the first 10 yeah. years. That really didn't serve me. You know, it didn't help me, you know, f- find my voice and, and take chances and risks that you need to do and, and mm-hmm. fail. You know, and I was like, I don't do characters. You know, later I started to do characters. Yeah. So what turned in terms of taking, and maybe you didn't phrase it this way or think of it this way, but to take more risks from the safety of whether it's the deadpan guy or whatever it is, those go-tos that you had to explore? Well, I think in terms of character, and, and I don't even know how long ago this was, but it had to be at least 15 years ago. Tim O'Malley, who was on main stage at, at Second City, he put together this a one-person show and got Norm Holly to direct it. And Norm is a genius. He's one of the best directors I've ever worked with because I've never seen somebody say so little and get so much out of an actor. He'd say one word and you you would change your performance. It was it was mm. amazing, and I always tried to study that, mm-hmm. from, you know, from Norm. But I, I, I it was frustrating because I you know I couldn't do it. But in that show, there was I played multiple characters. So the, Tim's show was one character show, but then he did it like a Second City style review where I would play the doctor, or I played Martin Demont, an improv mm-hmm. teacher. Or I played this guy, Rick Borelli, or I played somebody in a bar. And that gave me the confidence. Even though it was scripted, it was scripted. Tim wrote a great job and I got to improvise around that script. That's what gave me the confidence. And I got just great response from doing that show. And it was it was probably one of the high points of, of my performing. And that gave me the confidence of, of now in improv to start doing characters and taking mm-hmm. that risks. But I needed that experience to get me to the next level. It's kind of like, you know, I've gone back with doing World's Greatest Dad, which is the one-man show you yeah. referenced at the beginning, doing more storytelling stuff. And I, I th- this is weird, with, but it makes sense, too, at yeah. the same time. It's really helped me with my improv. Uh, more than going back and taking a class or doing more of it, doing storytelling has helped me have more confidence put myself out there and take more risks. And it's just, it's, it's really cool that, that, that I'm getting a benefit by doing storytelling for my improv. What do you think is the nature of that additional confidence? Where's that coming from in the doing of the storytelling? Well, I think anytime that you do something that you're afraid of doing. So I hadn't done storytelling for a long time in probably 20 years or something. No, no, no. 15 years. And so I went back to do it and it scared me. And being just one person out there, you know, telling a story when I first started, restarted, I should say, was seven minutes, yeah. you know, and it's you and you've got to put a different kind of energy out there to the audience because your relationship is you and the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes for me, I can get maybe complacent in improv or hide in improv mm-hmm. or rely on the other person too much in improv and, and not carry my yeah. weight. You know, and it gives you confidence, you know, that, oh, I can sustain interest of an audience for seven Mm -hmm. minutes. So when you go and you do improv and the scene isn't going well, you're like, well, you know, this isn't as hard as going up and doing a story and having it bomb. I I have a sense that we are all 
kind of wired. There's there's both uh, the uh, environment and the genetics, the, you know, the hardwiring and the software that we gain, you know, through our life experience impacting who we are and what we can do. But do you think that we individually as humans have certain giftings that will lead to whether it's in this case a, a stronger ability to do storytelling in one person than another, a stronger ability to do characters or physical comedy or whatever it is on stage. Do you think there are things that we individually should figure out how to explore in ourselves where perhaps if we just focus on improv generically or whatever type of performance we're doing, we will lose or not explore those individual giftings. Does that make sense, that question? Yes, yes. I think that, you know, I believe, you know, for me at least, that improv can help, you know, and that you say this, and I think it's just, we throw it around, you know, or I do, or have been, well, we, you know, improv helps you find your voice. And I really think it, it, it does help you find your voice. And inside the group, you can start to, exp- it gives you the confidence, I believe, to explore what it is that your passion about comedy is. And I think I've worked with people that are, you know, more physical or more characters. And inside that framework, when I was working, you know, the 10 years of the, the bad Bob Newhart impersonation, uh, the deadpan guy. I think we all have things that we gravitate or make us excited about. And I think for me, it was always the thing that Della talked about, getting up there and being honest. And so what I hope to do in in storytelling is, you know, reveal stuff, you know, to bring more honesty to it. And so for me, if, if it's in storytelling or if it's, you know, teaching the artist low comedy, it's like, where can I bring in a little more honesty in improv or in my storytelling? Other people may be like, oh, you know, we'd like to do bits. We think it's really funny to do bits, or we want to do musical improv, or we want to do genre improv, or we want to do long form, or we want to do short form. I think your interests or your style of comedy, improv can help you get there. Yeah. I think it's an interesting observation, though, too, that when you are in a uh, in a team setting, you can also rely on that team to feel safe and not push yourself as much. Whereas the teams that are really successful are everybody's going to be pushing themselves and exploring and pushing past boundaries, I think. Yeah. And I think also, you know, what I've learned along the way, and, and I've had, it's not an, it's never been an easy lesson. I, I remember doing shows and, and, and be like, oh, you know, that person doesn't, because I thought there was a certain way to play, you know, to yeah. do improv when I was starting out. And I, you know, I probably had it for a long time. I'm like, oh, that person, that person's too sticky or that person's, you know, too much energy or that person wants the audience to love them or whatever yeah. it is in my head, you know, or that person's just going for the, for the lap. But Anyone you've worked with, you know, anyone I've worked with, you can learn from them. And then when that person leaves, you know, you go, oh, my God, this is, you know, it's always too late, right? After they leave, yeah. right? But you're like, oh, my God, I learned that yeah. from that. You know, I resisted characters for the longest time. And I worked with people that were genius mm-hmm, at characters. Mm-hmm. And later, when I started to do characters, I thought, oh, God, even though it's it was 10 years since I had worked with them, I tapped into something that they had taught me you know, about characters that I, I didn't even, I didn't even realize. Mm-hmm. 
I do want to get into a little bit more theory but uh, with you, but I want to go back to Jazz Freddy for a bit. And mm-hmm. Jazz Freddy is a team name that I feel I've heard probably about 100 times. And this will happen, I think, when you have this oral nature of the history of improv that you'll hear about these teams or these individuals or these shows that push some boundaries. But I never saw a Jazz Freddy show. Only so many people did. Um, and people not in Chicagoland are that much less likely to have experienced that. So I'm wondering if you could tell us what Jazz Freddy represented, why it was a an important team, what it added to the story of improv. I mean, I'm that's I'm I'm asking a lot in that, but I feel like when you hear about some of these seminal teams, if you hadn't experienced it, it's hard to know what to do with what that that thing represents. Well, I think, you know, it was in a time it was in the 90s in Chicago and again, I mean, the 90s in Chicago, if you look back, was such a special time. And you had just the people that were coming out of there, you know, Stephen Colbert, Stephen Carell, they were up at, on the on the main stage. The Annoyance was forming. John Favreau and Adam McKay uh, were at, at the Improv Olympic. There was a team that Adam was on called The Family that just, I mean, Matt Besser was on it with him and I'm Ali Faranakian and a guy named Rick Roman and, and Miles Stroth. So you had the family, you know, here's his team and Dell worked with them. It was just, a, it was, a, you know, Rachel Dratch was, was, was in Chicago and then later Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I mean, this was an, an Amy Sedaris and, and Stephanie Ware. And it was just, it was a very. Yeah, on and on, right? On and on and on and on. And there, again, there was this thing, you know, and, and, and certainly the annoyance, I believe, embodied it. But there was this thing that we could do anything in Chicago back then. And, and, and it wasn't as institutionalized as it is today. And so there was more opportunities if you threw a show up at a theater, a small little storefront theater called Live Bait Theater, which we put Jazz Freddy, and there was much more art coverage in Chicago. You, you could make a name for yourself. And I think improv at that time was, it was, it was kind of like the Wild West. Anything went, you know? And, and so what we did was a very, very simple form where we, we would follow around a character. We did what you know today as tag outs. Um, so somebody would start as a character and one, it, usually it was a two person scene, as I remember. And then we would tag, you know, one of the uh, players out and we'd follow them in their life. And it was supposed to really be, as I remember, and this, you know, I'm sure if you ask somebody else, they're going to have a different in pers- a different ex- uh, experience. But to to flush out this character and see the life of this character, kind of like a slice of life okay. uh, character. And the thing is, we did it in a theater, which at the time improv was not being done in a theater except for a group called Ed, who had been very successful at the Remains Theater. And a guy named Jim Denon had directed them. And so Pete Gardner, who had started Jazz Freddy, he had worked with Ed and had learned a lot of stuff that was really influenced by Jim. And one of the things that Pete did that Jim had, had done with Ed, and I think it's one of the reasons it was such an impactful show, you know, for, for, I would see people generations, you know, the next generation was really, and I didn't realize this cause I was 
I was a big isolator and I'd leave after the show, but <laughs> it, it really impacted uh, that generation of improviser. They all wanted to be a doing jazz Freddy's type of, of improv. But what Pete got from Jim Denon and Ed was, let's make this a commitment. Let's treat this like a theater show. Let's treat this like we've been cast in a play. So we're going to rehearse three or four nights a week. Give us your conflicts up front if you can't make it. If there's too many conflicts, you can't be in, in the show. And I remember, for, I think the second run of Jazz Freddy, uh, we said, okay, Pat Finn, you're doing too many touring company shows. You can't make the commit. You, you, I believe he wasn't in the second run or Brian Stack. Mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong right. in those two people. I know we, we did make, some people we said, okay, you, you can't be in it because you can't make the commitment for the second run mm -hmm. of the show. So there was this commitment to it. And we had been done, all of us, had, it was kind of like we had finished at the IO, we had done the Herald, and uh, then eventually people got hired from Second City. So there, we were kind of in this limbo. And so through that, we created this great thing. And I think a lot of it came through commitment, you know, making that commitment to one mm -hmm. another. And then, and then, you know, I think we did two, we did a Friday and Saturday show and those shows were just sold out and it was a really big thing. Would you say that, cause I've heard you talk about this commitment aspect before, is it that that commitment level led to a quality product on stage that had people coming to it and it was something that other improvisers recognized as kind of a, a goal or a laudable uh, achievement uh, as a as an improv team that um, was the more important aspect of it as opposed to the fact that it was a certain form or format or uh, advances or techniques that you would employ in a jazz Freddy type show? Yeah, I think certainly the work. I mean, we, we had all been around for a long time. And so, you know, I, I think we were at a certain level, but we had never really reached our full potential. Mm -hmm. So I think, and, and I, I think the form was simple, but, you know, again, there was some character work to it. We would play the scene slow, but we would edit fast. There was, it was a whole, it was really a theater piece, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know? So I think people were like, wow, you can do this with improv because I, I don't think it had, it, it had reached that level yet in Chicago. I think certainly it's been surpassed, but I think it was so fresh and, and so new that they were doing this kind of s slower comedy, uh, but but they were editing fast and they and then you know they would do these tagins which were kind of fast and uh, it was just and it held together as as Dell's vision was he really wanted improv he believed it was an art form in itself and back in the nineties you know when you said you were doing improv people would go yeah. what you do stand up yeah. and you're like. And people didn't know what it was. And it didn't have the respect because back then there was a handful of, of us doing it, mm -hmm. really. And so I think this vision of Dell's was that it is an art form, which means it could stack up against the play. It could stand up against a one-man show. It could stack up against a sketch show or a stand-up show. I think Jazz Freddy did mm -hmm. that, you know, with with the quality of the scene work. And, and, I, and I really believe this. And again, you know, I'm losing my mind a little, my memory, yeah. but it was either Jason Chin or, or, or TJ Jagodowski who said, you know what, the form is for the players and the scene work is for the audience. And I don't think the scene, I don't think the audience leaves unless they're an improviser and you know, they go, oh, what a cool form. But the audience, and that, that was the other thing that Jazz Freddie got 
it wasn't just improvisers that went to this show, which is your highest compliment. We had actors coming. We had, you know, just regular audience people coming, you know, the general mm -hmm. public coming to that show, which is really a, a high compliment if you, you know, when, when you do that in an improv. Was that part of your goal was to reach that broader audience? No, a, a lot of us had been at the IO and we always wanted to explore more grounded, slow comedy kind of real scenes with characters and mm -hmm. stuff. And we always had that, that taste to do it. And this just, this was our opportunity you know, and again, you know, it was Pete's vision, but I think we all shared a little of it. You you have to share the vision. You have to buy into the vision of of doing this kind of improv. And I think it was just like, you know, again, it was another lightning in a bottle situation. Well, and I guess that's part of why this is so interesting to me, because when you have those throwback memories and and sort of a, around the campfire kind of stories about these experiences, and you have all of these names that you're able to refer back to, there is potentially a notion that could come from that to say, well, that's how it went in the 90s. It just was just this collection uh, and gathering of special talent that um, you could never count on happening again. But to me, that seems you know, as wonderful as all of those performers are and what they've done since that time, I don't think that really makes a lot of sense because there are continuing to be talented people coming into it, but it feels like the transcendence is is maybe less to me. I don't know if you agree with that or not. In terms of transcendence into... Well, maybe sort of advancing the, the work or just that there is going to be these teams where you look back and now you've got eight of eight people who are now moving on to these great things. And maybe it's there isn't enough time for teams to continue together because you spent however much time with Jazz Freddie. Other teams, you know, that seem to have success, the longer they're around, the more they're, they seem to be able to, to accomplish. But a lot of improv teams don't last more than, you know, a year, year and a half. Well, Jazz Freddie didn't last. I think Jazz Freddie lasted... We did two runs, and I want to say maybe the group was together for a year and a half, something right. like that, and then people got hired, but a lot of people got hired at Second City. But you were also intensely together for that yes. period of time. Yes. You make a, a point. It was a different mm -hmm. time, and um, people didn't, you know, now in Chicago or in other markets, they, they have much more access to stage time. We didn't have that, you know, here in Chicago. This is this is in the '90s. Yeah. So now it's like if you live in Chicago, you could, you could be easily doing an improv show or a jam every night of the week, you know, and that's for better or for mm -hmm. for worse. And the other thing is, you you never know what what's going to hit. You just don't, and that's why for every Jazz Freddie or every I'm 27 or every God show, which was Tim O'Malley's yeah. show, you know, there you, you've done 15 or 20 shows that didn't go anywhere. So there's no method to the madness. The only thing is, you know, the more you do, the, the odds in, increase that you're going to hit that yeah. show. It's, you, you can't predict it, unfortunately. Well, one of the other things that is maybe more notable in the Jazz Freddy experience was that it was something that you did on your own 
whereas perhaps improv is more focused on the institutions or the theaters um, and running through those programs and processes than maybe it needs to be? Yeah. And I'll tell you something about Jazz Freddy in terms of the, you, you make a great point that it w- was on our own. And I learned so much about producing a show and doing my own shows, because I think when you're in, you know, in an institution and we had come from IO and it's like, we didn't have to worry about the audience. Right. Sharna Halperin produced it. So, you know, she was responsible for getting the people there. Mm-hmm. You know, she, you know, we were told bring our friends or whatever, but it's different. You don't have the, you don't have the same ownership, right. you know, second city, you know, the same way, you know, they're the producers. So mm-hmm. they're responsible for, for, for getting it. And what I learned from Jazz Freddie is it's really important to do your own stuff. One is because if you do go in the institution, you have appreciation and gratitude for what all the hard work they do to get people in the seat. And the other thing is there's a sense when you do your own stuff of ownership and, and it takes you out of your comfort zone. I, you mentioned doing world's greatest dad, which, you know, I put up at second city, but essentially, you know, I, I produced it. So that means I have to ask my friends to come. I have to promote the show on social media. I have to um, do anything to get bodies there. But there's a different ownership, you know, and then, you know, there's a reward too. Uh, It'll be a financial Mm -hmm. award or, you know, a a great review in the reader that Mm -hmm. I got. But that comes from doing your own stuff. Yeah. Early on, I I loved working with independent teams and people who wanted, you know, would rent a space and do an improv show or a sketch show or, you know, because there is, there's, there's a learning and and also in terms of bonding too, because in Jazz Freddy, we had, we had to go out and we had to poster, we we did fundraisers to raise money to, to produce the show. Mm -hmm. And so we were emotionally invested in that show. And that, I think that's that, you know, I, I love when I, have a class and there's a class right now, um, improv bus that were people that had worked with me and they've been doing improv and now sketch shows for at least two years. And that makes me feel like as a teacher, like you can't ask for a better compliment for a group to stay together after they've worked with you in in class. Well, I do think the ownership aspect and also putting your own thing up, uh, it can be transformational. The theaters do provide a lot and we typically in our group, we're putting shows on all over the place in different cities and different uh, settings. And it's it's not easy. It takes some attention, but you also learn different things from the experience that I think translate into a fuller, richer performance ultimately. Yeah. And, and I think in this you know, in improv, you know, I've been fortunate enough to make a living with teaching and performing. To to learn the business aspect of improv, I think just makes you a more well-rounded improviser in mm-hmm. terms of your career. Mm-hmm. It's really, I think it's really, really, really important because if you want to go to the next level using improv, you're, you're essentially going into business. Right. Let me ask you, this was kind of a throwaway line that I, I heard you use at, at some point. I can't, I can't source it for you, and I'm not going to hold you to it necessarily. But in an interview that you did, you made a statement to the effect of all schools of improv want the same thing or have the same goal. Yeah. If you agree with that, what do you think that same thing is or what that goal is? 
I think it's just mindfulness. It's just to be in the moment. Then, then are these different schools of thought just different ways to get at the same thing? Well, I think what I was saying or was trying to say in that, mm-hmm. if you boil down improv, all of it, you know, music improv, UCB style or game style, uh, Chicago style, which is more relationship based, short form, long form, whatever. It's all about just, it's just being in the moment, being present, responding to the last thing that was mm-hmm. said. I think different schools have different, you know, different goals. Mm-hmm. I mean, UCB is more of a game style, right? Musical theater, you know, let's put on a, a Broadway style musical or any sort of genre musical. Short form is is more games. It's quicker, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's funnier, faster kind of stuff. Long form is more scenic. And then, you know, then genre like improvised Shakespeare, they have different right. goals. But I, I think if you boiled it all down, it's simple as like, just be in the moment, respond to the last thing that was said. And that is much harder than it than, than it seems, as, as you know. So in some ways, that's the skill of, of an mm-hmm. improviser is mindfulness and being in the moment. Yeah. And, and all of, the, regardless of what kind of improv you do, it, it all takes the same skills. It takes listening, you know, responding off the last thing that was said, agreement, dropping your agenda and, and mm-hmm. building off what your partner said. Baby Wants Candy, I remember seeing them in their musical improv. I've never seen a group faster. I mean, they were like, they're lightning fast in terms of agreement. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first line, they're, they're, it's just it's just like a mob. They're, they're just jumping on that agreement. Mm-hmm. That's musical improv, UCB style improv, short form, long form, genre. It doesn't matter. You know, the same rules apply. Well, and that's a foundation, I think, or that concept is foundational to your art of slow comedy workshops and approach, right? Yeah. You know, it's really about, it came out of, you know, certainly working with Dell and Dell was a big guy, you know, he taught us slow comedy about slowing it down. He didn't want you to be cute or clever making this emotional connection with your partner. And I didn't even realize what I had been teaching until a couple of years ago, the guy who wrote Improv Nation, he interviewed me for his book, and that, which is a great book, by the way. It's a great history of improv. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he was on the podcast, Improv Nerd, and he said, so what kind of improv do you like? And he says, I like it, you know, when it's slow and more thoughtful because there's feelings there. And I'm thinking... Oh, wow. I've been teaching this style for God at this point, like, you know, 20 years or whatever. And he, he said something that I didn't even see what I was teaching was when you slow it down, you can access your emotions. And I believe, you know, if you can, you know, if that's a, it doesn't mean, you know, you're like, you know, Oh, I'm angry. angry. But, but, but it's, it's that in the silence, it's this emotional connection. It may be a tone. You know, you and I may come out on, on on stage and you may seem really excited and have a smile on mm-hmm. your face. And, and that means you might have good news to mm-hmm. tell me, right? Mm-hmm. Or I've just told you good news. We may come out on a scene together and this isn't in, in the couple seconds in silence. You look sad and I look right. sad. Well, we may be at a funeral, but it's that connection, that, that, you know, without talking that allows us to connect emotionally. And then from there, we, we can start using our agreement and, and dialogue and mm-hmm. words. 
Well, and I, you know, I, I've uh, we've done a little bit of work together. I've, I've yes. seen you in action, and I think the the phrase "slow comedy" will sometimes get critiqued or criticized by some as being plotting. But really, I this is, and I'm asking you to confirm my observation. I think the slowness is go as slow as you need to, to stay connected. And if you go too fast where you're missing those emotional or even verbal offers, then you're going too fast to be present and mindful and connected with your partner. That's exactly right. And and I think it, it's trying to get a part of your brain or your mind or I don't even know your body, whatever, to work differently. Because I think for players, I, I want to help take the pressure off them of being funny and clever. And if they if they start making the emotional connection first and tap into the emotional tone of the scene, then they don't have to work so hard to create a scene and they don't have to work so hard for it to be funny. They may find a game in that scene. They may find some verbal pattern Mm -hmm. that they go back and forth that's really Mm -hmm. funny. They may find an attitude that's really funny about, you know, if we're two people at the funeral and all you care about is having lunch, that's enough to sustain a scene. You know, I don't know. Slow comedy doesn't mean you're you're working in molasses and it's really slow like this. It's like you can get that connection in two or three seconds. There was a there was a great uh, team here in Chicago for a long time, and I think they're in L.A. called Cook County Social Club. Right. Well, these guys, they were fast players, but, man, they were connected. They were actors. And and, and that's really what I try to do in, in slow comedy is get people to act more of their, their improv scene. Mm-hmm. Well, and that ties back to a goal that you've expressed um, or others have expressed in terms of seeing kind of realistic performances on stage. Now, improv doesn't have to be comedic, but there will certainly be theaters and styles that will drive towards that. You know, you mentioned UCB and game style. Well, that is explicitly designed to be a comedic result to it. You and I have also talked in the past about kind of the state of improv generally and where the opportunities are and the impact of having audiences that are primarily improvisers for certain types of shows or maybe in certain communities. Um, how, How would you describe where improv is at today? Maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. That's a, a huge question. So let, let, let me see if I can break it. Yeah, I'm not story. asking you to answer it all at once. I'm just kind of introducing the topic to discuss. It'd make a great turn paper, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. How many words? That's right. I want, and double spaced and don't play with the margins, Jimmy. I want a full, full 12 pages. Okay. okay. And a cover <laughs> yeah. sheet, right? A cover, cover page, page gets you okay. half a grade. <laughs> I think that, um, I think, God, man, I don't even know where to start. I think it's global. I mean, it, it, I've seen it in the last oh, uh, 10 years yeah. or so. It's global. You know, I do uh, the Artist Low Comedy Summer Intensives and people come in to Chicago to study at Second City and I own the Annoyance and I'm lucky enough that they study with me as well. So I'm seeing people from all over, you know, Italy, Poland, yep. Germany. Yep. A lot of fun. Which is great. And I think, you know, if you look at those countries, that was probably like Chicago in back in the 90s. Um, and then you're then throughout our country, every city seems to have 
an improv theater or a comedy theater that teaches improv. So, I mean, it's it's touching everyone. And, and I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen, Chicago isn't the only place now to learn Chicago-style improv. You have New York and Los Angeles because there's so many ex-Chicago uh, Pats mm-hmm. out there that studied in Chicago. So we're seeing that. But I think one of the biggest things that I've seen in improv, and I think it's where, because I, I, I focus on a teaching, is it's being used everywhere. One of the biggest changes that I've seen in improv is now people that are coming to Chicago, they may with have eight, 10 years of experience of improv. Right. When we started out, you know, in the eighties starting improv, we had nothing. That, that we had no experience. Right. You know, this is the first time we were being exposed to improv. These people in high school, in college, maybe even in, you know, junior high, they're getting improv. So that's a huge change. There's a woman here, Kim Green Hiller, who has started a, a thing called the Laughing Academy in a suburb of Chicago, where it's all just young kids doing improv. She has a whole building and a whole school that just is devoted to mm-hmm. that. There's people using improv training in corporations, and they have been for years, but it's becoming more popular. And you know they're doing it with Alzheimer's mm-hmm. patients and people that suffer from anxiety and kids on the spectrum. In terms of the use of the improv training, that's where I see a lot of the growth. What I'm hearing too is the growth seems to be in those areas, especially in business and corporations and organizations. The people that are coming to just learn improv, taking classes, my sense here in Chicago, now I I hear it's different in different parts of the country, but it's almost like that bubbles burst. You know, when I talk to my friends who teach at other places, they say the enrollment in their classes has been Mm -hmm. down. Yeah. Well, that's been the model, I think, for most improv institutions, theaters or schools, is that they are funded primarily by the training programs. And the the performers are typically not paid. And so it is, you know, it's almost got to be its own uh, kind of thing, unless there is a goal to have the mass audience where you have sort of money coming from the outside into the improv community, as opposed to the improv community has to be self-sustaining because they're the audience and they're the students and they're the performers And the theaters who have their expenses have to figure out how to keep the lights on, too. Yeah, that's been pretty much the business model. It seems where the profit center seems to be in the training center. And then, like you said, you know, you know, there's some exceptions. Some performers are getting paid. I I don't think uh, in Chicago, uh, you know. A ton of them are, but I know I've heard, you know, some shows do pay the performers, but basically, you know, the schools, you know, the, the, the school is what, what keeps, keeps the building going. That's where the, the, the profit mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And that ends up in some ways, I think, creating its own limitations, because if you are not pursuing a mass audience, you're kind of curating your own taste and, and maybe being more and more removed from everyday society. And again, no money then ends up coming into the system. So it becomes its own kind of inbreeding of sorts, I suppose. Yeah. And and I think I, we talked about this a, a while ago, you and I. I remember when I, I um, went over to comedy sports and I was 
renting their space. And they're great people, comedy mm -hmm. sports in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I came from a long, a long form background and I was a short form snob. And I remember going to that theater and my class would be done and then the audience would come in. And I'd look out the window and I'd see this, this big bus in front of the comedy sports theater on Belmont, which is a wonderful space. Mm -hmm. They did a great job mm -hmm. with it. And I was, I was like, oh my God, these are mainstream people. These are, you know, people coming from the suburbs or people coming, you know, um, tourists who have come into Chicago to come and see this. And I thought to myself, this, you know, short form seems to be the thing that, that a that appeals to the mainstream audience. And then later, when I was touring around doing improv nerd and teaching and stuff mm -hmm. like that, the same I saw the same thing and I would talk to people the same thing. Short form, they would always get the audience, mm -hmm. you know? And, and and I think, you know, as a long form snob, I think I'm in recovery for being a long form snob. That's where the audience, the mainstream audience comes from. And, and I think really, I'd lo love to see that happen. I'd love to see improv being exposed to more of a mainstream audience. And I think one of the ways that, that, that you can do it is, and I think we talked about it when I came out, when I taught for you guys last year, is you can take some, what would be long form games, long form scenic games. I think we did a thing with four people in the mm -hmm. car and you can insert that in a short form uh, amongst, you know, surround it with other short form games, sandwich it in there. I'd like to see more of that because, you know, it, it'd be nice kind of a longer long form game amongst your 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 faster short form mm -hmm. game. I, you know i'd like to see that because i think the one thing that sh uh, long form uh, being a long form uh, snob is you, you, there's not this the, the audience will get it or they won't yeah. and being around comedy sports and, and some people you know getting to interview people in comedy sports dick chudlow who started comedy sports dick was he was all about the audience, mm -hmm. you know, the audience experience, the audience experience. And I really think that, you know, long form and short form players, there, there certainly is a much bigger cross pollination than when I started, but we can learn so much from each mm -hmm. other. Well, and you're right in terms of, cause I, you know, I started in comedy sports in Milwaukee. That was my first improv experience, at least on sort of the class and, and then the performance side of it. Um, Dick Chud now did have a very consistent focus on the audience's experience. And uh, that drove a lot of that structure, which in large part, I think leads to the fact that people coming are outside of the improv community. The other thing that we talked a little bit about is what might be called beat prov or genre-based type performances. You mentioned Baby Wants Candy, um, the improvised Shakespeare in England, Ostentatious comes to mind, and some other places that will take a genre and run with it. I think back to like when you were at The Annoyance and the uh, uh, the Brady Bunch um Parody isn't necessarily the right word for it, but that structure or UCB having the real, real world, those kinds of things, I think, do have a broader appeal and maybe part of what long form is missing or maybe needs to lean into is how do you take that strong scenic work and that skill set and apply it in a format that gets different butts in the seat? Well, I think TJ and Dave is a prime example of, of that. Now, they're 
you know, they're two of the best improvisers probably to ever live. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is is a play, you know, and they've certainly done extremely well in Chicago and and they take their show to New York and they sell out and they do a a great job. And, And they've been able to they have improvisers in the audience, but they also have a mainstream audience. But I think that the genre, you know, improv Shakespeare is, you know, it's a huge hit in Chicago and I know they've, they tour some and I, I, and uh, I know they put it up in New York and in Los Angeles. That's a show where the audience understands what it's about. It's, you know, in the title, improvise Shakespeare, we know what they're going to do. And they happen to do it so well. Blaine Swen it's just it's just a phenomenal he he works those guys really hard they rehearse you know it's a really tight really 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 good show but i think you know jean it seems like in a music improv mm-hmm. does really mm-hmm. well too you know in terms of audiences because pe- you know baby wants candy we're gonna we're gonna improvise a broadway musical for you people get they, they you don't have to explain it they right. get it and i think you know certainly when i was starting out doing the herald I remember my dad coming to see one of the shows and we were very, you know, artsy and serious and, you know, we were creating art versus letting art just happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember running out, uh, we were doing it at the back of a bar and I remember going to my dad because I wanted his approval. I said, dad, what'd you think? And he, you know, he's very polite and he goes, well, that was above my head. Yeah. And I think that that is what a lot of mainstream audiences that's the reaction. And, and Mick uh, Napier, in his second mm-hmm. book, he really addresses that problem of let's try to make long form more inclusive to the audience. Yeah. And I think genre-based improv is one way that people are doing it using long mm-hmm. form. Well, in the, the long form structures, I think what grabs, at least this seems consistent with people that I've spoken with, whether on the podcast or you know in real life, is that they have an experience where they see a herald magically come together at the end and the common phrase is it blew my mind or something to that effect and then they're hooked and they're chasing that where you don't get that experience in every uh, long-form show and an audience member who do- is spending time figuring out what's going on may lose track of those things that are ultimately coming together at the end so even if someone's mind is blown not necessarily everyone else's is if they don't have the handholds to get them all the way through to the end. Yeah. And I think it gets back to, you know, what Jason Chin or TJ Jagodowski said, you know, the form is for the players. And I think, I think sometimes we want to overcomplicate stuff, you know, for me, if I am seeing good scene work, good solid two person scene work, some group scene work here and there in, in a form I'm satisfied. I think sometimes uh, especially you know people that are just new to improv they want to be like oh we got to do this four man you know it's called the you mm. know the scooby doo where you know we're going to do a tag out and then you know it's like no 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 focus on doing good scene work because that will always serve you no matter what yeah i mean i don't, I don't know if you agree with this but just sort of you describing that makes me think of and i forgot who said it first but you know no one ever left an improv scene saying i'm glad they fixed the bike and so improv scenes can go awry become less interesting if the focus is on the thing you're doing and moves away from the relationship I wonder if there are times where 
trying to target a certain goal in a form might be the equivalent of fixing a bike in a you know longer sense where driving towards that goal pulls you away from the presence and the relationship that you want to have in a show generally. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think what happens is people sometimes there's like levels, you know, that we hit the first couple of years, you know, oh, I did a scene and I got laughs and then you you start to learn like, well, it's not just about laughs. It's about putting a scene together. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and then you're like, oh, yeah, we, now we're doing good scene work, you know. And then you're like, you know, and we master the Herald. or I don't think you can ever master a form, but we, we're doing really good with the Herald. And I think it's kind of human nature. It's like they're focusing, I think, on the form over the substance. Yeah. And that's the scene work. Um, you used the phrase earlier Chicago style improv. Mm-hmm. What do you think that is? I think Chicago style improv is focusing on the relationships of the scene. Um, you know, certainly where I studied, I owe, uh, it's games. It's it's more intellectual. You know, Second City is more Spolin based. Annoyance has its own method, which is uh, Mick Napier. But I think in all three of those schools, I think it, it comes down to relationship scenes, you know, focus on the relationship. That means a character. What's the, di- you know, what's going on between the two characters? And, you know, for the most part, try to avoid plot. I think of it as like we're creating little slice of life scenes. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Chicago improv community, there is a lot of intermixing and people routinely take classes at multiple or all of the major schools and some of the minor ones and then independent classes like the ones that you put up uh, frequently, including your summer intensives. And people can find all of that at your website And you've also done a lot of exploration about improvisers and improv communities, uh, especially across the U.S. How do you feel that that has informed how you view improv today versus where you might have been earlier on in your career? Well, I think, you know, and I haven't done this for about since my daughter Betsy was born, she's almost four, but going to different cities and seeing different, uh, I was, I've always, there isn't a time where I haven't been impressed with the training. Um, and, you know, I went up to Milwaukee and worked with, with your people. And again, the training, you know, it, it's, it's a really high level. Before I started traveling, I don't think I would have seen that or thought that. Hmm. So that was really, really, really eye-opening. And I think the other thing that, that I've experienced, and it depends on what city it is, but, um, you know, people forget that, you know, now, sh- you know, you'll have people, I'll have someone in my class and they'll be taking a class at the Annoyance or Second City or IO. I mean, it's very rare that you have a student today that's not taking at least at another place. But that was not always the case. You know, when we started out in the 80s, it was, we were IO people, mm-hmm. you know, or improv Olympic people, because it wasn't IO back then. Right. And then there was the comedy sports people. And then there was, you know, the Second City people. And then the Annoyance people. I think it was, um, it might have been Jay Suko I had on as a guest. And he talked about going to a party. You know, it was a, a someone's apartment. The, the, you know, the comedy sports people were in the back and the annoyance people were in the, in the front and the, the IO people were in the kitchen. You know, it was very much like that. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, you know, people, new people, you know, new places started up and they were teaching. People felt threatened. But after a while, it, it all merged. And now there's cross-pollination. And I think 
and again, I haven't been out there for the last four years, but you know, there's some cities where there is that resistance. There's that feeling threatened. And so, you know, my hope for those communities is eventually they will come together mm-hmm. and because that will make it an improv destination. Mm-hmm. And really there, there's enough for everybody. I benefit greatly with when teaching my electives because people come in for those other institutions mm-hmm. and they come and study with me. Well, an improv person wants to stu- and and I, you know, I strongly recommend it is study with as many people as possible, you know, because what you're doing as an improviser is you're gathering the stuff, you know, oh, this stuff that Jimmy gave me works when I work with Jimmy and this stuff works when I work with Jill Bernard and this stuff works when I work with Liz Allen and this stuff works when I work with Miles Straw. And so they, they take a little from everybody, whoever you're working with, right? you know, or Joe Bill or Dave Rosowski, and you, you, you make it what works for you that they gave you. That's why improv is a personal art form mm-hmm. because you're really making, taking the stuff that what works for you. Mm-hmm. Well, and it certainly helps that there's access to these voices. I mean, you put a lot of voices out there on the improv nerd since you started it. And that gives some flavoring and seasoning if people are absorbing just the wisdom and the experience and perspective that can all inform your work. And then to have an experience with those individuals is just that you get that much more out of it because when a Jimmy Corrine comes to teach and you have a sense of how you're going to come at it, you have the baseline for the Jimmy Corrine experience, but then you're able to teach past that baseline that much quicker and faster because people aren't starting from from square one and from zero. Right. And I'll tell you, you know, doing improv nerd and uh, has been, I mean, for me, it was like going to class. And I always would learn something, at least one or two things, having somebody on uh, as a guest. And I think as a teacher, it's like, for me, it's like, okay, I got to just, I got to keep learning. You know, if that means, you know, putting up a one-man show, if that means taking a dance class or learning how to play ukulele, Mm -hmm. you know, keep learning from other people. I mean, this I'm learning from. Well, this has been a, a great exercise for me. So maybe everybody should do a podcast or start writing some things or whatever it is to grow in the art form because it is, like you said, a personal art form. You learn about yourself by doing it and also hearing the perspective of what other people are learning because we can all see, I think, a little bit of ourselves in just about everyone else's experience. We can learn from each other and staying static, to me, makes it less interesting. So to continue to grow keeps it exciting. Well, and you also can learn, like for me, like one thing that I struggle with a lot still is like, initiating a scene, coming up with a strong initiation. And before that, my Achilles heel was agreement. You know, I really struggled with agreement because I'm like, you know, we don't agree in real life, you know, and I want to, you know, making it real was the most important thing. And I think I've gotten over the hump of agreeing to some degree. I still probably need work on that. But the strong initiation, that's something that's true in my own life. Where do I not initiate in my, my everyday life? asking for what I want or being direct. Yeah. And I remember Lauren, my wife, came to a show once and she said, you know, you start all your scenes looking down at the ground and immediately you're low status. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, like that's, 
this was, you know, five or six years ago. And it's like, that's at that point, that's how I was going through life as, as a low status character. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that's cool about improv is finding those things about yourself that you do in your own life. And then on the, the, you know, on the flip side, I'll do some things on stage that I don't do in, in real life that probably would serve me if I did it in my real life. Yeah. Well, when, and I've heard you talk a lot about the observations that Lauren makes. She has been, I think, a great improv coach and life coach for yes. you. Um, yes. So congratulations on all of that. Um, but when you find yourself doing some some habits that maybe don't result in the best initiations or presence or whatever. I mean, internally, we've had some discussions, like if someone is feeling like, well, I just get so anxious in scenes. Well, some of that is you are, you know, maybe you're coming in and you're choosing to be an anxious character, which then just ramps up the anxiety level because your character and your actor are, you know, they're intermixing. So making choices that lead to more confidence or choosing to come in and be open to being higher status or not looking at your your shoes can lead to a different result and I think can have a spillover effect into your everyday life too. Right. And then then there's the opposite paradigm. And I agree with everything you said. Then there's the opposite paradigm, which is and it's something that I've shared in my classes. Uh, I was part of the the original Armando Diaz casting in Chicago, mm -hmm. and I, I, and it was, I mean, it was at that time it was some of the greatest improvisers in Chicago, and I was intimidated and I was scared, and I probably I every scene probably for the first year and a half was me going out and playing a scared character because the truth of the matter is yeah. I was scared, and I think you can also if you're in the back line and you're scared or you're you know, you're timid, go out and, and initiate that way because th that's in your body. You don't have to. And I think a lot of times people are like, well, I'm scared. I don't want to play a scared character. I, I'm nervous. I, you know, like, well, there's the gift right there. Just step into it. And, and eventually, if you keep doing it, like my experience was, I kept doing it. And after a while, you know, you get confident and you, you lose your fear. Before moving to my last topic with you, I want to ask you this question mm -hmm. about having been Jimmy Corain, the instructor, uh, the teacher, and also, you know, just the presence that you've had in the improv community with things like the improv nerd. How does that impact you when you are in a normal performance, improv performance situation? Um, I think that it used to get into... Where, where it still gets into my head is when students come, let's say I'm at a current class and they're like, we want to come and see Jimmy and Johnny, which we do once a month at Second City on, on Sunday nights. And I still get nervous because I'm like, oh, <laughs> I got to do what, I, what I'm asking them to do in class. Yeah. And that's where I usually get in my head. And it took me a while, like the guy who does improv nerd, this is going to sound weird, but I don't care. The guy that does improv nerd seemed like he was a different person than the guy that taught the class and that the guy that, that, that would improvise. Okay. And, and so it was, it was really hard to like mix those personas or those personalities. Okay. And I think, I think over time I, I've been able, I've been able to do it not as successfully as, as I've wanted at times, but hmm. I feel like now it's pretty much like, you know, I just get up and, and, and perform. Mm -hmm. 
There, there is something interesting about being in a position where you do have to live up to what you say and you teach. But ultimately, if you if you believe it, then doing it shouldn't be intimidating. It's just, you know, we're never able to be perfect. And we have to, I guess, be okay with that too. So Right. But I think the hard thing sometimes is, you know, so and Jimmy and Johnny, and I play with John Hillary, uh-huh. amazing improviser, one of the best I've ever played with. He can, he can get a point of view like that. Yeah. And we'll have a guest that will come in. Well, so each show is different in terms of energy and the guest has a lot to do with it. And, and we're open, you know, um, we played with D Ryan, and Dee Ryan had done a forum with Joe Bill and Dave Rozowski at the Dramatic Improv Festival here in Chicago. And, they, and she said, oh, okay. so she was talking about it. And she said, hey, let's do it. And and or we decided let's do it because that's a way to challenge yourself. So it was like one long mono scene. I think you, you started with a conversation with the audience. We kind of modified that. And then we go into this, this scene. And you play one continuous character mm-hmm. for 35, 40 minutes. So that played right into slow comedy, which was fine. But yeah. you'll have other people that will want to have more frenetic energy to the, to the piece. Maybe they're playing more surreal or out there kind of stuff. Well, first and foremost, my job is to support them. So, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't go as slow as I want it to go, you know, in terms of, of the improv. Because, you know, that's just the nature of it. And then I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have students in there and they're like, oh, he tells me about slow comedy and he's... He's, he's just been silly for the last 40 minutes. So th- those are the, the, the struggles that I have to face. Yeah. Let's uh, f- finish our conversation talking about World's mm-hmm. Greatest Dad, which you've you've put up, I don't know how many times, but I know you, you put it up for, I don't know, I think you had two or three originally, and then you added a number of performances and maybe adding additional performances mm-hmm. down the road. I know it's a, a big topic um, in terms of you having mm-hmm. your own child and losing your father. Um, all are, you know, those are big topics that inform this show. But can you talk a little bit about what that experience has uh, meant to you and how it has impacted you as an artist and individually having, um, you know, now accomplished it to uh, what seems like some great reviews? Well, I think uh, it's, uh, having at my age, I, I was 52 when, when Lauren and I had Betsy. So I think, you know, that, you know, in terms of just a performer, in terms of an improviser, I've learned to play more. Having a child, Betsy's almost four years old, it forces you to really improvise in your life. Because as you know, you know, when you have kids, especially when they're really young, there is, you you can't, you know, I'd put her in the car seat and we'd say, oh, we're going to go to the grocery store. Well, you know, if she's crying, you know, you got to abort that plan and you got to, you got to just keep improvising. So that certainly is, is, has helped. But more importantly, as an artist, the whole thing of my father dying, being a father at my age, going through the birthing process and fertility, that gave me, and it was painful. You know, there was a lot of feelings around this. That Mm -hmm. gave me a lot, a lot of material. And it still does. If people want to find out about uh, if they're you know able to to get out to see the show, what's the best place for them to to find out? Probably go to my website, or I also just did a, a Facebook page, which is World's Greatest Dad? Question mark. Well, Jimmy, I uh, I'm conscious of the time. Always lots to talk about. Oh my God, we could go on for three more hours. <laughs> we we could. So maybe we'll 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 do this again uh, at another time. I I always enjoy spending time with you. Oh, and, me too. 
Yeah. So I'll make sure people know the links. People have probably already looked you up in the past, but just really appreciate all that you've contributed to the improv community generally. And we'll we'll talk again real soon. Thanks, Whit. Thank you. If, like me, you weren't in the front row to see some of Improv's early evolution play out, I hope the discussion we had regarding Jazz Freddy gave you a better sense of the history of Improv. But in that discussion was also a challenge to commit to a higher level of artistic quality and experience. And maybe part of that might require you to take ownership of your onstage product in a way that will advance your craft, your ensemble, and I'm speaking to you improvisers out there, and perhaps even improv itself. Stand-ups and speakers have the advantage of that ownership that's inherent in their art form, but improvisers can get away without having specific ownership. I think it's a great challenge to consider whether you're hiding within your group or a scene or a show, or maybe even within the safety of a specific theater, and look to climb out of that safety net that might have become a hammock for you. Another point of focus in this episode is the notion that by focusing on good scene work, you'll carry your improv so much farther than getting caught up in structures or form. This ties into the premise underlying Jimmy's art of slow comedy, connecting with your scene partner in a deeper way and not moving so fast that you blow past the emotional and other connections that gets to the heart of the art form is very important. As Jimmy says, moving slow enough will take the pressure off you and lead to funnier, more natural improv. And if you can find your way to Chicago or if you're lucky enough to have Jimmy teach near you, get the direct experience. Jimmy continues to produce and share content generously, and jimmycurrain.com is a great place to get a ton of it. And I want to thank him again for being generous and kind with me as I work to find my footing with this podcast early on. He didn't need to, but his expert advice really helped me grow as an interviewer and host. And if you're an improv nerd subscriber, you can understand how impactful and meaningful that was to me. I hope you'll agree that season two has started out strong, and I want you to buckle up for some wonderful conversations that are coming your way. I'm really excited about this season. Please do share any and all feedback and suggestions with me by sending me an email at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com or online through the podcast pages or accounts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy, and your feedback helps me do that. Thanks for continuing to let me share these experiences with you as your host on the Improv Comedy Connection. My name again is Whit Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Whit Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I'll soon be officially launching a site at witschiller.com to deliver and curate this and additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.